Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a starless interlude. There are seven episodes. This is one of them. Will McCullough is sleeping soundly in his bed, curled up under a soft, fluffy blanket with Phoenix snoring softly beside him. I don't snore. Who's telling the story here? Go ahead. Suddenly, a 20-pound weight crashes into his chest, and he awakens to two yellow lantern eyes staring at him from out of the void. He landed on your chest? Usually he lands other places. Will you knock it off with a commentary? Why would I do that? I'm trying to read a narrative here. Meow, says Sokka, demanding his morning affection. Okay, okay, says Will softly, giving Sokka his requisite scritchies between his ears, under his chin, and on his cheeks. Sokka purrs appreciatively, a deep soothing rumble that only comes from a cat that knows they are loved. Aw, who's the best boy, says Phoenix, rolling over to offer her own pets. Meanwhile, Leela sits on the headboard, glaring balefully at her brother, as if to say, obviously not him. Now I may speak? Yes. (laughs) yeah except to be honest she was probably on my hip i took some dramatic liberties she likes to lay on my hip in the morning so that i cannot roll over so that i cannot be comfortable and that so that you cannot give affection to her brother i know how she do we all know how she do any hoozle let us get on with our second to last episode of the Starless Interlude. But first, a few disclaimers. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Erin Morgenstern or her publisher, Anchor Books. And finally, as always, please be kind to yourself, to us, and to the authors responsible for the books you love. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into the Starless Sea. This week we're covering pages 406 through 488 of the U.S. paperback edition. So things kick off with Dorian drying off and washing off and then drying off again on the deck of Eleanor's ship. He's covered in honey initially. I don't know that drying off is an improvement. The whole affair sounds really uncomfortable, to be fair. So here we also learn a little bit about how things work in the Starless Sea It seems like it's almost a living entity that responds to the stories that people tell about themselves, about the world around them, which is how Eleanor has this ship. She's essentially willed it into being. I think that's also how she explains why Dorian has the star coat. That's why he has the star coat. It's also why he has the sword tattoo. And it's also why there is fresh water on the ship that he can use to wash himself off. And also how a bucket of fresh water gets that much honey off of him. Yeah, (laughs) there's some of that. So they pull into one of the older harbors and here they set Allegra off for a burial at sea and light her on fire. Right. The only instance of burial at sea that is coming to mind right now is from game of thrones and that was botched and yeah it does kind of have a viking funeral vibe to it yeah also 
people give Edmure a hard time for the fact that he couldn't hit the body with the flaming arrow. But I mean, unless you're trained in archery, I'm not sure that you could reliably do that. I think people gave Edmure a hard time because he's supposed to be this leader of men, or at least he fashions himself as one, as a military leader. And as we see in that series, he is woefully incompetent in most everything. Right. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve to be treated like a tool because he is a tool. I'm saying that that particular instance is maybe not the thing to focus on. I think it's mostly just meant to be an illustrative character beat. Yeah. The fact that he is bad at something that he has actually had training at should tell us that he's not the right person. For like anything? Pretty much. So moving on. It's interesting seeing Dorian here confronting his complex feelings about Allegra. This is someone who up until about a year ago he's trusted implicitly and now has much more conflicted feelings about. He's seen the dark side of her and how easy it is for him to get into that dark side. Yeah, I'd say that this is also something that you can attribute to abuse victims. You might not realize in the moment until you have some separation just how bad something is. You might know it's bad, but when you have something to compare it to that is normal, the gap can be massive where you never knew that that was the case. So moving on, we get to Zachary. We check in with him and he finds himself after getting whisked away by the owls and separated from Mirabelle in a pitch black cavern and ruins of statues all over the place. There is something about being in an unfamiliar place with no light that can change someone who is normally okay with their situation into someone who is unable to cope. Back when I was in fifth grade, one of the landmark field trips for our school district, and I think a lot of the ones around the Puget Sound, was to go to Fort Casey. Yep, we did that too. Yeah. And there is a underground bunker that they like to take the kids through. They make you hold hands. And if you let go of your buddy, God help you. Anyway, we went through this thing and my friend who was like all boastful before going through freaked out and gripped my hand so tight. So, so tight. And then we had ghost stories in another bunker with no light and she had to be escorted out, which meant I had to be escorted with her because she could not possibly go on her own with a counselor. She had to have one of her friends, so it was me. I'm sorry. I didn't get to have the ghost stories. Do I know this person? No, you do not. Oh, okay. (laughs) I know who you think it is. It's not that person. Different person. No, she was fine. She got to stay. Lucky. I know. So he manages to find a torch that'll actually work. And he's able to use his cigarette lighter to get it going. Unfortunately, this isn't a video game torch. It's an actual torch, which means it's finite. (laughs) 
And while he's down there, he encounters a giant rabbit. I think I can hear a giant rabbit or maybe just a 20-pound cat right outside our door. I'd probably guess it's the latter. Go ahead. He also has an encounter with the darkness, which is just this disembodied voice that manifests all of his inner doubts. Not terrifying in the least. Not at all. It's telling him that he's making all of this up, that this adventure isn't real, that he doesn't matter at all, that his agency doesn't matter, that he's a nothing. It feels a lot like the concept of an anxiety monster or a mental illness monster that sits on your shoulder and just tells you all these lies. That's kind of how I envision my anxiety disorder, is this little all-lying all malicious little thing that really ought not to be as impactful to me as it is because it's small and I should be able to squish it, but it's convincing me or doing its best to convince me that these issues that I have that might be tiny are actually terrible and catastrophic, that I won't get through it, that Waiting for some bit of news is something to be feared and it just whispers that maybe the thing I expect to happen isn't going to happen and therefore the end result of everything is going to be terrible. I think this little voice here specifically sounds a lot like depression because the lies that it is telling Zachary are things specifically saying that he doesn't matter that he doesn't have friends, that nobody cares about him, that nobody will miss him, nobody is looking for him, that his existence amounts to a hill of beans, and maybe not even that, that he should just give up right now. He should just curl up and wait to pass. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Fortunately, he gets rescued by someone with a delightful Britannic accent Unclear whether it is English, Welsh, or Scottish. Or South African, or Australian, or New Zealand. Could be one of those, yes. Zachary isn't very good at telling the difference between all of those. Well, granted, there are like, what, 20 in the British Isles alone? Or more? I mean, yeah. Considering that the British Isles cover a landmass that is smaller than the state of Oregon, that's yeah. a lot of accents. <laughs> but he fortunately gets someone who is able to take hold of him and help guide him to safety, both physically and mentally, because he's repeating that voice is lying. Don't listen to it. You matter. And offering that physical reassurance that he's not imagining things, that his own experience is real and valid. It's harder right now because we can't all be gathered in the same space. But that person can be so important. Whether it is from someone whom you know personally or from a stranger just reaching out in that moment of isolation, you can really see just how much that means to Zachary. When the stranger brings Zachary into his refuge, which appears to be some abandoned temple, Zachary recognizes his rescuer as none other than Simon. Maybe not young 18-year-old Simon of the book, but nonetheless, Simon. 
There is a man lost in time. Find man. We then move back to Dorian, who is flashing back to his first encounter with Mirabelle and his, I'd say, epical shift. This is where his entire worldview gets rocked. His entire way of thinking about everything changes. He's been tasked with assassinating her. And Mirabelle being, well, the literal personification of fate, doesn't perish easy. (laughs) Not at all. And in fact, doesn't perish. This rocks Dorian to his core. We can see that he's already having some second thoughts even before he makes his attempt. And Mirabelle is able to confront him with just what he is doing and is able to give those doubts life and help him find a way out. We also get back in present day, Dorian arriving in this cherry blossom forest. So Eleanor drops Dorian off on the shore of the sea. And as they part, they talk about Mirabelle. Because Dorian, before he leaves, gets it into his head that he really needs to say, I know your daughter. And Eleanor's like, you know Mirabelle, she's not my daughter. Only because she's not a person. She's something else dressed up like a person, the way that the Keeper is. You know that, don't you? Sometimes when you get the confirmation of something that has been in your head, rattling around as kind of wrong And you go, oh, of course I knew that. That's what happens to Dorian at that point. And it suddenly explains why his assassination attempt failed. Yes. So as he is exploring this forest of cherry blossoms, he encounters the Owl King. Now, the Owl King here doesn't seem as malevolent as maybe we've been led to believe him to be. He seems almost resigned I think part of that is that whole having the eyes of fate thing where he essentially believes that everything that happens is predestined. It's foretold. He has effectively given up his agency. At the same time, he acts as sort of a guide here, guiding Dorian to the inn. Next, we move back to Zachary and Simon. And on the floor of the temple, Zachary finds the next paper star which reads, The Door in the Moon. The son of the fortune teller stands before six doorways. And he also gets an owl friend. A little budgy owl. What's interesting here is over this course of this reading, I shifted how I viewed the owls. The owls here are presented more as forces that move the story forward as opposed to malevolent antagonists. They are the things that bring change that cause the story to progress. If you think about really any story that goes on, it isn't just the same thing happens every day. There is some force that arrives that disrupts the day-to-day life, that forces the characters to confront something, that forces the characters to examine their conflicts, that forces the characters to move forward with their lives and then and then and then exactly and that's what the owls do they're catalysts 
not necessarily negative, not necessarily positive either, but they're there to push the narrative forward. They're almost a metaphor for time. A little bit, a little bit. One of the things that I loved about this exchange here is as Simon is recovering his sense of self, thanks to getting to read the Ballad of Eleanor and Simon, I'm going to call it that. I may have edited out exactly why, but just know that we don't always have to go with the man first. Exactly. There's this bit where Simon talks to Zachary about the importance of making choices, of going with the story, finding out what happens, and taking actions, and also offering sort of a defensive free will, which is very tricky in a story where time and fate are in love with one another. Everything that happens occurs because of choice, ultimately. I love the bit where, you know, Zachary is thinking of fortunes and fables, and he's thinking about the way that, you know, astrology tells us that our fates are governed by the stars. And then Simon reframes that and says that we're the stars. The stars control our fates, and that's us. Our choices are what make things happen. And the choices of other people influence our choices. We have a say in what happens next. And it reframes that story about the stars tasking the owls with what to do about fate and time. And it ends up reading like just the worst book club ever <laughs> who hate the one true couple. Oh, no. Anyway, that was my take on that. <laughs> I think that's a good way to look at it. So back to Dorian. He arrives at the inn, and sure enough, he is welcomed by the innkeeper, who we earlier met in Fortunes and Fables. And I love this description of, if I were to imagine this warm, welcoming place as a person personified, it would be that guy. <laughs> Naturally, he's given instant welcome, conversation, warmth, and refuge from the elements. Unfortunately, the innkeeper's wife is not present. And I love how Dorian says, oh, the moon's not here. And <laughs> the innkeeper replies, no, the moon's just a rock in the sky. My wife isn't here. <laughs> <laughs> and he gives Dorian a gift, which is a box, an elaborate box carved out of bone. And I think this is the one that the story sculptor, a.k.a. Aaron Morgenstern, <laughs> as the author insert character, <laughs> crafted to house the heart of fate, which is to say the heart of Mirabelle. Which also goes to explain why when Dorian punches her chest through with a needle that nothing happened. I love the question. Do you have a mouse? And it really fits because it was the mouse who saved the heart of fate from the owls. And it was that mouse-like man who commissioned the story sculptor for the box. We also discover that the innkeeper's wife, a.k.a. the moon, a.k.a. the rock in space, has periodically been getting gifts for her husband on her travels around the world and has lately taken to just giving him mice. <laughs> Cute little mouse sculptures and... There's one with a sword on a hexagonal base that fits perfectly into the story box. The sword probably representing 
either the sword on Dorian's chest or the sword that Zachary holds. I have a feeling those two swords look an awful lot alike. It's very possible. Speaking of Zachary, we go back to him. This little bit here kind of feels like Zachary has arrived at a save point. There's this great big roaring campfire, seemingly tended by no one, but it's in perfect condition. So you're getting souls vibes. Little bit. Gotcha. And there's a tent, but not just any tent. It's a pretty big tent that he can actually walk through without hitting his head on the ceiling. And a little bit of inventory management here. (laughs) There's an array of boons for him to pick from but he's only got so much space in his pack. I'm getting a little bit of the cornucopia and a little bit of under the sword tree. There's some of that. There's also some of just playing a game of Skyrim and knowing that eventually you'll be encumbered. (laughs) Especially if you don't have God mode on. Yeah, some of us actually play the game. (laughs) (laughs) Why you make fun of me? I'm not making fun of you. I'm making fun with you. So he's forced to make some choices about what he wants to keep. He discards the muffin, which is uh, obviously squished at this point. Ew. I mean, it wasn't gross. It was just squished. Where was it being kept? In his bag, wrapped in a napkin. Yeah, it was probably ew. And he has himself some dinner. In this case, some finely prepared Cornish game hen. That is video game food. Yeah. (laughs) It's like how in Skyrim where you're wandering around this dank crypt and, oh, hey, look, here's a sweet roll. In a coffin, in a catacomb. I'm not eating a sweet roll that came out of a catacomb. Oh, it's been just fine aged. That's all. You got to figure that all of the catacombs in Skyrim have a massive mold problem. It adds character. Gives it a nice sort of tang. Must. That's what blue cheese is. But that's controlled, and it's probably not going to give you food poisoning. Well, what's a little adventure? Come on, you're already going through all these caverns. Why not live on the edge? I don't know. As an adventurer, wouldn't you rather be killed by a giant spider or a come-back-to-life dead Barrow King than, like, a tainted sweet roll? (laughs) No. I'd rather just not die at all. Well, one of these things is going to kill you if you're not on God mode. (laughs) After girding himself and picking up a map from the array of provisions available for him, which, incidentally, I think is the wise choice, given that he doesn't know his way around, he comes to a set of doors. And there are several that look pretty obvious, but he's looking for the right door. And the one he finds is one that is drawn on the rock. It reminds me a little bit of the Doors of Moria in Lord of the Rings, where it only shows up under certain light, and you have to speak a secret word to enter it. Speak friend and enter, yes. Instinctively, he knows that this is the door that Mirabelle set out for him to find. So then we get to an interlude where Cat and Madame Love Rollins interact. Cat, who we haven't heard from for a while, re-enters the picture. And there's been a two-year time jump. One of the things that I was really gratified to learn is that she is exactly as awesome a friend as Zachary suspected she was. She's taken to looking for him and has been keeping in contact with his mother. And this whole interlude is really warming to me. 
Because one, Kat continues to be awesome. And two, we find that Zachary's mom is also just as awesome as we'd hoped. I love how she has this fortune that she will meet her two sons. And given that she's not going to give birth to another, she knows that has to mean that she'll have a future son-in-law. And she's really looking forward to meeting this person. So she knows that sooner or later, Zachary will come home with his new partner. The whole sweet, cute relationship thing with especially two gay men and having it be effortless and having it not be remotely judgmental. Yeah, sure, the wrong type of person is going to dislike this whole entire book because the central romance in it is between two men. Even though the romance is not at all front and center, it's just sweet and in the background and it exists. It has a fairy tale romance feeling to it, which is to say that it is mostly sketched in suggestion and appearances, but it's still real and important. And it's also made explicit. It's not so hidden that you kind of have to assume that they are gay. They are in a relationship by this point that she foresees. This whole chapter to me is also a celebration of different types of love. And I am on the record as loving love in all its forms. We have romantic love as expressed by Dorian and Zachary. We have parental love as expressed by Madame Love Rollins. We also have friend love, the friendly love, the sisterly love that Kat feels for Zachary. We have some timeless love in the form of the Keeper and Mirabelle, or fate and time. And Madame Rollins has love right there in her name. And she expresses that so purely. Like, she knows who Kat is. She knows how much Kat cares for her son. And at that point, she's family. And I absolutely love those sorts of found families that occur. The feeling of being welcomed into someone else's family is incredibly important and it's touching and transformative. And I love how that happens here. This is just a beautiful little thing. And it also is a chance for Kat to re-enter the narrative as we get to see her perspective on what has happened here moving forward in the next segment, where we get an interlude from Kat's secret diary. It picks up immediately after Zachary's disappearance. As far as Kat knows, he's gone to this weird party in New York and then vanished after two days. She hasn't heard anything from him. The police have been by and they've asked kind of the usual questions and haven't been very helpful. So she decides she's going to play a little bit of detective work. She gets the campus IT department to let her into Zachary's email address and therefore his computer. That's an ethical violation. <laughs> she definitely bends some rules here. And it's strange. The entire account seems to be completely scrubbed. Like every aspect of Zachary seems to have been erased from his computer. His email is pretty much blank. And instead of having his custom Blade Runner background on his wallpaper, it's just the generic digital 
nature scape. I guarantee you that if I were to try to log back into my DigiPen email, mind you, I have been out of that school longer than I was in the school. It's coming up on six years, holy buckets. But I guarantee you, I'm still getting things from random groups that I am technically still part of and that the newest email is probably within the last month. Well, and she's not even able to find mails that she knows that she sent to Zachary. That's creepy. Also, by looking at her own email, she can't find them. So something's clearly up. She goes to the Algonquin to try and trace Zachary's steps through New York. She investigates a mysterious club that burned down, figuring that the timing was suspicious, and finds herself at the Collector's Club. And then she spends some time in the Strand, hoping that he'll just pop out somehow, which is actually probably a better strategy than she imagines. The Strand being the bookstore. Yes. So then we shift back to Zachary. He's gone through this door and finds himself back home in upstate New York at his mom's house. Except it's kind of a sideways parallel version of his mom's house. On the porch, he finds that it's a Christmas party going on and there's Dorian in an ugly reindeer sweater. This feels so comforting and comfortable and off. It's designed to be seductive. It's designed to get you to lose yourself in what you think you want in this illusion of normalcy. At first, he's thrilled. He's encountering the love of his life again. They found each other. And then it becomes apparent that this is not right. Because Dorian doubts Zachary's accounts of what Zachary knows has happened to him. And it's almost like entering into a cardboard cutout, a diorama, rather than real. It feels like how people fantasize about what a relationship is actually going to be like with someone, not the reality. It's sort of that sitcom version of reality as opposed to actual reality. And also in that sitcom version of, what are you talking about? This is all a dream, right? Yeah. Oh, did you just have another one of your episodes? Trying to discount the reality by making a better one. And Zachary runs from this. And he sees in the distance a stag in the woods. Knowing that this is a bit of iconography that is oftentimes tied with actual Dorian, he follows. So then we get back to Kat's investigations. After striking out at the Collector's Club... She starts doing some investigation in the dark web and runs into a message board dedicated to debunking myths and conspiracy theories. And so she asks about a bee, a key, and a sword. Pretty quickly, people respond, don't dig into this. You don't want any of this. But she gets one intriguing reply, which says, crown, heart, feather. The Owl King is coming. So then we come back to Zachary, who has just left the dream Dorian, following a stag into the woods. And he asks the moon for the actual Dorian to bring him something, to give him a sign. And of course, the moon doesn't say anything because the moon is just a rock in space. But he gets a gift. 
And in this case, it is sort of almost an astral visitation from actual Dorian, wearing his star-buttoned coat, and they have a reunion. And this is this bit of triangulation and that reminder that even though they aren't physically together, they're not alone, that they still have each other, that they still matter, and that they can find each other. Their problems are still real, but they're solvable. One of the things that I love about Zachary and Dorian's relationship is that they enjoy one another's company and they complement one another in terms of their abilities and their skills and their inclinations. They fit one another like puzzle pieces. It's really important to see that they work as companions. They're equals without being identical. And it also gives Zachary the strength he needs to carry on, the strength he needs to ignore the seduction of that seemingly normal life behind him, to push forward, to find his love, to find this man who is searching for him, and to find that quest. So one thing to note is that at one point, Zachary has the opportunity to read what his future will hold. And he chooses not to. At this point, he's committed to being the protagonist of his story. That means he's going to do what he thinks is best. He wants to keep his agency. He doesn't want to be the Owl King, all-seeing but completely impotent to change anything. Dorian wakes in an unfamiliar room. Looks like, yep, he's back at the inn. And he knows it's time for him to leave. He gathers his things, and he gathers the sword that Zachary has given him in their little astral visitation. And before he can leave, the moon returns, a.k.a. the innkeeper's wife. And she's just as awesome as we thought she would be. She gives Dorian her blessing, as well as a boon of her own, and sends him on his way with a reminder to ignore the seductions of this place that'll tell you these things that you want to be true. Those things that you fear to be true. Look for the things that you know to be true. I love this. It's just such a great way to kick them into the final push of this story. And so with that, I think we're at the point where we talk about our favorite characters. Who'd you pick? I have a lot. I love the moon. I love her little send-off. I love the innkeeper. And I love his pragmatism. The moon is just a rock out in space. But I chose Eleanor. I am a sucker for the bunny pirate. I just am. I think that that's charming. I think it's wonderful. I think it's great that she has made herself into that person. I love that she is on a voyage to find her lost love. I love that she has put forth the effort to map out this place such as she can and the descriptions of her maps she's caring without being saccharine or overly invested in something that doesn't truly matter to her but she's kind and empathetic and I kind of love the idea that she can will things into existence and she has used that power for good I also loved how she started her adventure looking for Simon, 
but has also recognized that she may never find him and that the exploration has become its own thing and that she exists separate from him. Yes. Existing separate from the person that you are inextricably tied to is still important. We are we, but we are also you and I individually. We each have our own likes and dislikes and our own path to travel. They're parallel right now, but that doesn't mean that they are the same path. And she has that sense that she exists apart from Simon and he exists apart from her. They both matter as people, not just as an aggregate. So that was what I liked about her as well. Who is your person? I picked Kat. I figured. I like that here we get to see the flip side of her relationship with Zachary, which we've only seen through a couple chapters at the beginning. And we get the sense through Zachary's eyes that she's smart and capable and creative. And she's also kind and empathetic towards him. But I think they're both aware that they are friends of circumstance. They're friends because they spend a lot of time together by default, not necessarily through choice. There is a thing called the mere exposure effect, where the more that you are exposed to something, the more favorably you look at them. Yep. It's why you get sometimes thrown together through the vagaries of the housing lottery and you end up finding someone who ends up being your best friend and you never would have known them otherwise. It's a real thing. And it's not an instant thing, but we also see that they hadn't quite moved beyond that friend of circumstance level. But we also discover that Kat wanted to be actual friends. She felt robbed that he was taken from her. And so she holds out hope that he's still alive and follows his trail and talks with his mom. All of this leads me to really just instantly bond with her. Like she is the kind of friend everybody should want to have. As Zachary says at the beginning, it's good to have a cat. It is good to have a cat. And Zachary is really lucky to have her in his life. And I'm really looking forward to their reunion. Okie dokie. Artichokey. So we decided for our recommendations this week to pick cooperative games. What did you pick? I picked Untitled Geese Game, which is the co-op version of Untitled Goose Game. Because you can both go around being a complete dash hole to this little town and honking at everything. <laughs> so it's a short experience. We haven't actually gotten all the way through it, but... I don't think we've laughed that hard at a game in forever. <laughs> it worked so well. Like, they did a really good job of making it so that there could be two geese in that game. <laughs> so, we have admittedly had experiences with other games that are ostensibly co-op. Where it tested our relationship yeah, you're thinking of Yoshi's Woolly World? I am thinking of Yoshi's Woolly World, yes. Yeah, that game I actively hated because I hated playing it with you. Because we have diametrically opposed play styles. And instead of it being just kind of a 
frustration, it actively hindered both of us because as soon as one person went one way and the other person went the other, the person on the trailing edge of the screen just dies. And that is aggravating. Yeah, it is so, so terrible. Now, I understand Nintendo game platformer. It's made so that little kids who want to play together or whose parents say, let your sister have a turn, you know, whatever, as Will actively eye rolls completely off the edge of the bed. But (laughs) it's made sloppily at best. It is not fun to play together. We've tried it with other people. We've had other people who are in rock steady friendships want to murder one another while being on co-op on that game. But that is not the same as like Untitled Geese game. Untitled Geese game, we can actually have a dialogue and say, hey, I want to go find this thing. We have a goal. This is our goal. Let's go be this, you know, whatever. And let's also do our best to be obstructionists to the town folk. One of the things I love about Untitled Geese game is that while not everything will advance your checklist of Jack Ashery, you're always given the option to do something for no other reason than you want to be a jerk. (laughs) And it's fun to be a jerk to the humans. And it does a pretty decent job of the rubber banding of your two characters. I never felt like I couldn't just say, no, 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 we need to go over here. And you would be okay coming with me. Or you going and saying, no, 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 I need to do this. Or like, let's cooperate to make it so that we can actually do this thing or whatnot. It felt completely different than like the platforming challenges being a hindrance. And my exploration style and your, I just want to get to the goal. Bleh. No, but it was engaging and fun. And it played to both of our little impish streaks and having one person do one thing and the other person do another thing was completely doable, but also it wound up furthering your goal together. And it's kind of nice to have license to be just a complete jerk. Honk. 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 So that was my choice. What was your choice? So my choice was not a video game, but a tabletop game, specifically Samurai Spirit. Yes. So... One of my favorite movies of all time is The Seven Samurai, which is, well, it's the story of seven samurai. That, that part's pretty obvious. But it is seven masterless samurai who band together to defend this poor farming town from an army of bandits that have been marauding and stealing their crops and burning their houses and just generally wrecking up the place. So... The game is played over a series of nights where each of the samurai have unique abilities and they build up fortifications and get the townspeople ready. And then the bandits arrive, you fight through, then you collect afterwards, lick your wounds, rebuild fortifications as you can to do it all again. And it's a lot of fun. One way to describe it is middle-aged spiritual samurai animals. I thought it was a great way to capture the spirit of that original story and then add its own little flair to it that makes it unique because at a certain point, 
your samurai can call on their animal spirit and they get special powers in their animal form, though they're ultimately more fragile because they're usually lower on hit points. But they are also more powerful and can hit harder. And my philosophy is if you can kill them faster, they can't kill you. Yes. And so it's a lot of fun to coordinate with your team and try and figure out how your abilities work together. Everybody's a little bit different. They bring their own gifts, their own strategies, their own talents to the game. And I thought it was a really clever game. You get a group of four people together and have yourself a good time. It's a good way to spend a game night that doesn't end with everybody shouting at one another. Yeah, that's important to me also. I really do love having a cooperative board game. I never really care whether or not I win a game that we play. I care more about the experience. I think it's really nice every once in a while, at least, to have it be everyone against the game board rather than everyone against each other. Absolutely. So now let's talk about our favorite game experiences. So I'll start off here. This is the experience of hiring a friend of mine. So this friend applied for a job first with your company uh -huh. with an interactive novel instead of a regular traditional resume. Okay, when he says my company, I was working for a game company and our friend was applying to be a QA tester. And it was just this weird thing capturing all of his multifarious experiences, covering everything from doing apartment maintenance to doing programming and design to doing goat husbandry <laughs> and everything in between. Now, unfortunately, he didn't get the job with you. I know. I would have loved to work with him. We've talked about him before. He's the same person that was in my example of playing the witness, and he just does things. And he doesn't seem to have that little mechanism that tells him no. And he uses his child brain and it usually works out incredibly well. And if it doesn't, he has this creative spirit that just lets him move on to the next thing. Well, and in this case, he ended up applying to work with my company. I had recommended him for a position doing incident management. And he decided, you know what? Screw the traditional way. I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> and sure enough, he brought my boss the interactive novel. And I just remember my partner coming to me and going, MC, what the hell is this guy doing? Who is he? What did we find? <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is just the experience. Just roll with it. Follow it. See where it goes. <laughs> and so, yeah, we went through all of it. The fact that this person had come up with this elaborate way of telling the story of who he was and solving problems and being willing to make mistakes and recover from them, we all knew that he was the guy. Sometimes you just have to do the thing that seems bonkers. And I absolutely loved that. <laughs> and I still remember when my boss was like, okay, so we found the hire. And God damn it, it's another one of Will's recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> basically built that team. I did. And I was really happy with the people we got. Yeah. I 
loved the fact that you were on that team with so many amazing, wonderful people. My goodness, I would have loved, though, to work with him. Not to say that the person that was actually hired for the QA position in our team was not someone I liked. I do like him. But man, I really wanted a work spouse. And if it could have been him, ha, huh, off the walls, bonkers, everything. And it would have been great. Yeah, I, I still remember that his desk was this perpetual biology experiment. Like he would leave out a carrot or a potato for as long as he could to see what would happen to it. <laughs> it was kind of hilarious. Because the janitors don't touch the things on your desk. Right. I mean, we were in a secure room, so janitors hardly ever came in because they needed to be accompanied by security. I'm sure that your work partner was less than pleased by this. Although your work partner's car is pretty much a science experiment gone wrong. Yeah, that would be accurate. Um, less said about that, the better. Yeah. Anyway, I think that that's a great game experience because it turned somebody's resume into a game, into an interactive experience. And he really got to showcase him, which is great. Yeah, there was no question about who they had hired. They knew exactly who we got. And yeah, I was thrilled to have him with us. Yes. So what's your game experience? All right. So this is going to sound negative, but it is not. One thing you have to remember about me is that I went to DigiPen to be a game designer. It's a four-year college, very intensive. This is how you become a game designer. Not only that, but my kind of subset of game design is UX design, user experience design. The thing that matters the most to me is the experience and polishing the experience, making it feel good to play something. And let's face it, not every game feels good to play. This is more so when it is a game that is made by one person. This is even more so when it is their first game. I was recommended a game that had actually been on my game's wish list on my Switch. For a couple of months, I'd been thinking about possibly picking it up because I like games that are about grief or some shirt. I like walking simulators. I like things that have no combat. I like things that have a sad story that you have to experience through gameplay. It's cathartic. This one was not. And part of that problem, I'm not going to name the game. Actually, no. Should I? Yeah. Should, okay. So the game is called The First Tree. I can definitely see what the designer was going for. It felt a lot like a student game. As in, it needed to be tuned a little more to feel the way that they had intended it to feel. I can even go back through a lot of the classes that I had and the lessons that my amazing game teachers taught me including teachers that run a YouTube channel that's all about game design, including teachers that have worked for game studios like LucasArts, including game teachers 
that worked on tabletop games and digital experiences and a lot of things that you'd probably recognize from before they started working at DigiPen. The biggest problems included retraversal, which is something that I was disabused of in one of my classes. I made something, I poured my soul into it. I thought that this was really good and I got back with a barely passing grade and it was used as an example by the teacher in front of the class as to why you don't have collectibles that you have to go find and then go back to the beginning of the level to go and do the actual game. It broke my heart. I realized that at the time I was taking way too many classes and that one was intense. And that had taken a month of my time and I could not see myself being able to devote the time and effort to getting a better passing grade for the next two projects. So I had to make a huge decision to take my lumps. I stayed in the class as in I kept going to the lectures, but I withdrew from the class so that I could learn these lessons and then apply them later when I could devote that energy. Another thing that I learned that I can look at a class and then look at this game and go, okay, we had to learn how to guide a player in 3D space with light, with color story, with patterns on the ground, with what have you, to go in a specific direction so that they would experience what we wanted them to. And then you give it to someone and you watch them play it and them go the other damn direction, which is what I did in this game, The First Tree. There are mountains. My natural inclination is to climb the damn mountain. <laughs> my natural inclination, and it's not just me, my natural inclination is to do exactly the opposite of what I am being told to do in a game. And if doing that completely ruins the game, as in you have to follow the breadcrumbs the way that the designer wanted you to or the story makes no sense, it needs to be reworked so that either A, you can't have that happen, or B, it doesn't matter if that happens, that it won't confuse the player and it won't upset the player. There have to be clear indications of where you're going to end a level. There weren't in this game. I accidentally found an exit that was unintended from a level. All of these things are little bits of polish that could have helped make everything better. But I'd say that the biggest thing was wanting the level to be smaller, wanting everything to be less sprawling. I know that there's kind of an impulse in an open world feel to want everything to be big, but that doesn't lead to a crafted experience. The other thing, if I choose a setting like run versus walk, it should not revert back at the beginning of the next level. It should stay the thing I chose. This is meant to be a short experience. I have a cat that wants to eat everything that is non-edible in our kitchen and he does it to get my attention. And I need to be able to stop a game in the middle of it and have a place where I can go back to it. Every one of these levels, if you stop it and had to quit out of it, had to go back and redo the whole thing. There are just a couple little things and then I, got to the end of the game and I found out 
who did the game testing and every single person listed on the QA side of everything is related to the person who made the game. Again, there are just some tweaks. This isn't a bad game. It's not meant to shirt on the game designer. I had fun finding all of these things that I would improve upon. This is how my brain works. I can see the possibilities. I have purposefully bought things that I knew were not going to be good, but I wanted them and I enjoyed them anyway. <laughs> that is how I work. But every single one of these people being related to the person who made the game means that they probably were afraid or unwilling to tell this person who they knew had poured their heart and soul into making this thing that it wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. And I think that there's times where you have to open yourself up to people who are going to tell you that the thing that you made is terrible, especially in this particular industry. Again, the game isn't terrible. It was worth my $10 and it was worth my time. But that's because that was the type of experience that, while maybe it's not the one that I wanted, is still enjoyable for me. So you had some things to talk about on that, some of those fronts too. Yeah, I mean, the retroversal issue isn't unique to even just student games. Or indie games. You look at something like Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, and while that game is great, I really love it, and the combat is perfect, and the puzzles are fun and interesting, there is a problem in that there's no fast travel, so you have to get to every place the hard way. And that means there's a lot of retraversal and it can be as much of a challenge to get out of a temple ruin and back to your ship as there was getting there in the first place. Correct me if I'm wrong, but getting back out of some of these places, though, still had enemies to fight and things that were interesting to do. Yeah, usually, but it oftentimes meant that you had a lot more challenge than maybe necessarily you wanted. So you reach this narrative high point when you complete one of these sunken temples or what have you, unlocked a new force power, and then you have to go back and do the same sorts of puzzles and combat just to get out that don't necessarily take advantage of the new abilities that you've gained. Oh. So it ends up feeling kind of repetitive and again, if it's always just the same stormtroopers and ice trolls or whatever, after a while, that gets a little dull. Did they have, I didn't play all the way through it, but did they have any layout tricks the way that Skyrim kind of does where you get to the end of the dungeon and then there's a fast exit? Sometimes, but not always. Sometimes you had to come back out the way you came in. Like, especially on some planets, you'd have to do some extensive traversing of open world areas to get to your temple. And then you had to spend the same amount of energy trying to get back. So not just within the temple itself, but just getting to it was oftentimes very time consuming. And with no fast travel or anything like that to help ease that, it just ended up being more extra work that didn't actually add anything to the experience. I can definitely see how that's frustrating. What I'm talking about in this case was that there was nothing 
once you got to that goal and then you're like, well, I got this thing. What do I do with it? Or I got to the end of this path. The next thing that I want is all the way over there. And there's nothing of interest between here and there. And it just feels big and empty. And even if it's not physically empty, it still feels narratively empty. Note to game designers, big is different from good. Yeah. Okay, but I do still really desperately, desperately want to stress, especially to our Instagram follower who I know listens, who I also know is kind of curious about my take on things and also kind of concerned that I wouldn't like this, which, I mean, it needed improvement. But I found the experience valuable and it kind of tickled that little part of my brain that is like, hey, I want to sand down those edges. And it was a great thought experiment. I just want to assure everyone that this was still a good game experience for me, even if the game itself was not. So with that, let's move on to our book recommendations. You first. So I picked Pattern Recognition by William Gibson. This is the story of this cool hunter. And her job is specifically to find the next big trends, the things that are going to influence people, the things that people are going to gravitate towards, and figure out how to bring those to light and get her marketing agency to work with them. She does this because she has this sort of It's almost a a psychosomatic allergy to branding. So she is someone who cannot stand to have anything with a label on it. And it gives her an almost physical reaction. She files the labels off of her shoes, her clothes. She snips them out wherever she can. And it's because she's so sensitive to those things that become viral. And so she ends up finding a video clip hidden somewhere on the internet, then starts following it to see what it's all about, who made this thing, and what are they doing? What are they trying to build? The whole thing is about the experience of apophenia, which is the human brain's tendency to find patterns everywhere. And oftentimes that's useful when those patterns are real. But apophenia is what happens when you see a pattern that isn't there. And it's about how the internet makes use of that. How people end up going down rabbit holes on Wikipedia or forums, and they find themselves basically believing a whole host of things that aren't real. And it felt like something that was very timely, even though it was written in like 2002. It's a very prescient look at how we look at our world today. And it's a reminder that we always need to interrogate why we think things are the way they are. And to remember that sometimes the patterns that we might see may not be real. I thought that that was really fascinating. I think it ties in really nicely also with how Kat is brought back in the Starless Sea. She's going through a similar detective work here. There's just a lot of interesting stuff there. So, yeah, give Pattern Recognition a try. As for me, my recommendation is a book called Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe, 
which is by Benjamin Alire Sands. I think it is very important, very, very important to have representation in our media. LGBTQIA plus representation, non-white representation. And I think it is important for people who are white to read and experience things created by people who do not have the same pallid skin tone as I do. There is also kind of this void of representation that crosses these two boundaries. You don't have a lot of media that shows in positive light two young men falling in love with one another. And to have them both be Latino, just like having that much more, this is okay to be this way. The story is a coming of age story and it is sweet. It is introspective. It's realistic feeling. It isn't what I normally read. I listen to it on audiobook. So if you like Lin-Manuel Miranda's voice, he reads it. It's kind of awesome. The story, though, feels like it could be a real person. It's fiction. These could be real kids. They could really be going through this and trying to figure out how their sexuality meshes with their heritage, with their cultural family dynamic. And it feels timely and good and accurate. And it's also heartwarming. We've been watching a lot of Property Brothers and I am not going to pretend that I am necessarily the proudest of this particular binge watch, but it's comfortable. It's the same format over and over and over again. But one of the ones that we watched recently was a gay couple who were engaged that were buying their first house together and they didn't shy away from showing them being affectionate to one another. Sometimes you get stories about gay men or gay young men and the whole focus is on sex. It's not about the relationship because toxic masculinity still creeps into this. It still shows up as something that we need to still appear manly or there's one manly dude and one not so manly dude and I think that calling them effeminate is an insult to them and to women and to whatever. There is no woman in their relationship. They are two men. That is what they are. And to see them kiss on camera was, it was nice because it was sweet. And they were very clearly wanting to give the other person a win. And to show that you can have this romantic, tender feeling towards another person of the same gender. And we don't have to fetishize it. And we don't have to assume that ideals of masculinity should be pervasive and prevent you from having a want to be loving towards one another. Man, I just, I want more representation of good, healthy relationships with people of the same gender, with people who have no gender, with people of all skin tones, all heritages, all races, all sexual orientations, romantic orientations. I just want more of that. 
I want to be able to see people who are like me and who are not like me in media that I can consume. At the end of the day, you, like me, love love. I love all kinds of love as well. So with that, let's go ahead and move on to our quotes. So I had two. One is actually from the narrator. Dorian runs a hand through his still sticky, graying hair, feeling too old for all of these marvels and wondering when he went from young and faithful and obedient to confused and adrift and middle-aged, but he knows exactly when it was because that moment haunts him still. Which just kind of hit me like an existential way to bricks. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that transition too. It's a mood. I'm probably not going to include that one on an Instagram post, but I think maybe Dorian, like us, is interpreting that feeling as being old in a way that isn't exactly accurate to being elderly. It's specifically that period in middle age when all of the things that seemed easy and simple when you're young are suddenly revealed to be far more complex and you're having to confront those realities. I think it's also the point at which new things that younger people are into stop being something that you're interested in. TikTok. Yeah, I, I still don't get TikTok. I know, I know, old man yells at cloud. Whatever. Right. I had to actually wait to get onto the sea shanty TikTok thing until it showed up on YouTube, which that's not a sentence that old people would have said when I was 20. So moving on to my actual quote here, <laughs> this is from Simon and he says, we are the stars. We are all stardust in stories, which I really loved. I thought that really tied back into the classic Carl Sagan quote, we are all made of star stuff. That reminder that we all have agency, that we all matter, that we are all children of the universe, that we all have possibilities, that we all have things we can do. So I thought that was cool. I think that that's a wonderful quote. And when I was trying to pick my quote, I asked you who yours was by, because I was kind of afraid that I was going to pick one that was the same as yours. I did not. However, I picked one that is similar to yours by Simon. You are words on paper. Be careful what stories you tell yourself. That's a really good one. Because like our friend who made the interactive resume game, and like my friend who drunk dialed Bungie <laughs> to get his first job in the industry, most people are like, no, don't do that. Don't do that. There has to be a stopgap. Like there has to be something that tells you don't do that. That is not a good idea. Don't do that. And then there's the people who are like, oh my God, you did that. I'm hiring you. Or, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. Here, you get what you wanted. And I think that those particular people told themselves a story that said, I am perfectly capable of doing this thing that I want to do. My methods are going to work. And they said, what would I do if somebody gave me this? What would I do if somebody did this? Well, I think that was awesome. And so because I think that that is awesome, I am going to do it. Yeah, I'm sure that there was a little bit of trepidation somewhere in the line, but they still did it. And that's pretty awesome. The story that they told themselves was one that said, yeah, 
I can totally do this thing that everyone would think is bonkers and it will work. And it did. Because I was afraid that I was going to pick the same quote as you, I do have two others that are back up. Those are? The moon says nothing. She only watches, wanting to see what happens next. And because we are ostensibly a Name of the Wind podcast, I couldn't leave it alone. But a mortal cannot understand the wishes of the wind, no matter how loud it cries. Those are both really good. Thank you. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. Audience, it is getting late. We have discussed stuff for almost two hours, even if the podcast that you're listening to has been edited to be shorter than that. So thank you very much for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone, a starless interlude, where we will be covering pages 489 through 570 of the U.S. paperback edition of The Starless Sea. Mind you, that is the end of the book. We'd like to give a special thanks to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And to Aaron Morgenstern, who has created The Starless Sea that we have enjoyed exploring. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Also, quick note, if anyone has played the first tree and would like to let us know what they think of it, I'm totally up for that. If you contact us on Instagram, we're at Waystone Pod. If you contact us on Twitter, we are at Waystone Pod. We do have a Facebook. I kind of stopped checking it. Meanwhile, if you'd like to help support us, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to the show, special Patreon exclusives, and all sorts of other fun goodies. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. I figured. Well, I mean, probably because you looked at my thing. <laughs> I did not look at your thing. And this sounds wrong. I did not look at anything that you had. What did, what thing? My document. I did not look at your document.